I'm Josh Porter, and this is the Van City Church Podcast. The following teaching is part three in the series, More of the Holy Spirit, 2022. All throughout the Bible's story, God works to create unique spaces for intimacy between He and His people. But for centuries, these places were marked by restriction and limited access. Until a gift, long awaited by the people of God, was poured out, and the Holy Spirit came to inhabit every one of Jesus' disciples, who can now worship in spirit and in truth. Why then do so many of us have so many hang-ups with worship? Why don't we want to sing? Why do we feel weird about lifting our hands? And what are we missing? So would you guys stand with me? We're going to read from the Gospel of John chapter 4, beginning in verse 19. This is the story of Jesus and the Samaritan woman. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit, and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is Spirit, and His worshipers must worship in the Spirit and in truth. These words are inspired by God. Thank you, guys. Go ahead and grab a seat. In 1999, my friends and I discovered a then-obscure album by a Swedish band called Refuse. The album is called The Shape of Punk to Come. Now, in those days, wow, a lot of enthusiasm for The Shape of Punk to Come, apparently. In those days, uh, if you were around and listening to music at the time, especially independent music, record labels would release what we called compilation CDs. So you'd go to a record store, which at the time had no records, go figure, and then you'd thumb through the compilation section, find your favorite record labels, and then you'd blow about $20 on two or three CDs in the hopes of discovering new music. You'd have no idea what you were getting, but maybe there'd be two or three good songs on there and you could go buy those records in turn. But by the time we found this record that way, The Shape of Punk to Come had been released in 1999, less than a year after, or sorry, in 98, so we found it in 99, less than a year after its release, the band had already called it quits. Apparently no one cared, no one had paid any attention to this record, no one was showing up to their tour dates and dive bars and legion halls, and the band was already embittered and they were over with. But, like a lot of great art, unappreciated in its own time, The Shape of Punk to Come eventually found its audience, arguably becoming one of the most influential rock records of all time. Thus, 14 years after disbanding, in 2012, Refused got back together. And now my friends and I, a few of us who had obsessed over and emulated this band and this album since we were 16 years old, suddenly, for the first time in our lives, we have tickets to see them in concert in Portland. And we went. It was incredible. And it wasn't just nostalgia. It was something more. It was a spiritual experience, transcendent. So afterward, naturally, on the walk back home, we talked about worship. Now, for most of my life, I had been a worship cynic, uh, arrogant and self-righteous. I don't mind telling you. I suspected the hand raisers at church of insincerity. And in my mind, few sins are greater than the sin of disingenuousness or of being phony. 
And I loved Jesus. I read my Bible every day. I went to church. I prayed. But something about all of us in a room singing bad songs together could not be reconciled with my pride and my pretense. So I did sing, but only just so. Anything more, I told myself, would be contrived, uh, a put-on. I sang enough to be a good sport, I thought to myself. Now, some of my friends felt the same way, in fact. But after that Refused concert in 2012, we were walking back home, all, you know, saturated and sodden, back to our apartment in Portland, and my friend Mike wandered aloud to the group. And I remember exactly what he said. He said, I wonder why it is that I can, without even thinking about it, raise my hands and fists and shout at the top of my lungs at a concert like that, but I would never do something like that at worship in church. And I remember falling silent because I suddenly was wondering the exact same thing. Tonight we're concluding our series on the Holy Spirit. We've unpacked a biblical theology of who the Spirit is, His power, His presence. We've talked about learning to hear God's voice and Since all of that is about relationship with God's Spirit, tonight I want to end the series by talking about one of the primary outlets we have to connect with the Spirit of God. Now, we could spend many months in this series without exhausting the relevant scriptures or theology, but we're really after foundational pieces for the culture of Van City Church. What does it mean to show up here on Sunday and why? What does it mean to belong to a Van City community proper or to be part of Van City, the family, the church? Our hope and prayer is that just as we maintain our commitment to practice the way of Jesus in all kinds of things, submission to the authority of the Scriptures, we are also simultaneously becoming a family and a people empowered by the presence of God's Spirit to see and demonstrate the full range of the things that the Spirit does. We talk constantly at Van City about the three goals of discipleship, to be with Jesus, to become like Jesus, and to do the kinds of things that Jesus did. And there's a reason that be with Jesus comes first. Really, all throughout the Bible, God is constantly working to create unique spaces in which He can experience intimacy and connectedness with humanity, from the first story on until the last story. And in every single picture, this unique space that God creates for intimacy is also a place of worship. It begins, as many of you know, in a garden, the first temple, if you will. But the whole Bible begins and ends with a picture of God with his people. If you know Genesis, Adam and Eve, the garden, all that, we read, it, we read in it that God would walk in the garden in the cool of day, whatever the heck that means. We're, we're just not really sure, quite frankly. But whatever it means in the specific sense, everyone agrees that the author of Genesis means to depict a world in which there is no barrier between humans and God, where intimacy is as effortless as an afternoon stroll. He's just right there. He takes a walk with his people in the garden. And then much, much later, at the conclusion of the Bible story, the climax of the book we call Revelation, we read this amazing, beautiful glimpse into a world made new. And we read this in Revelation chapter 21. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. So the Bible begins, God walked with humans in the garden in the cool of day, and it ends depicting God, His dwelling places with the people. God is with His people in loving intimacy as we worship. In fact, you can trace this motif across several major landmarks in the Bible story. Mount Sinai, the tabernacle, the temple, 
exile, Jesus, the spirit, the church, and then the body, as in the physical body. You've got God's spirit and presence and worship on Mount Sinai. If you know that story, remember that? Moses and camping in the desert and it's a whole thing. And then they get instructions for the tabernacle, and it really goes on. A place of extreme aesthetic excellence to house God's presence, facilitate intimacy and worship. And there's all kinds of beautiful, surrealistic art, abstract art and aesthetics. God cares about it really specifically. It's like you have to get these guys, the crafters and the woodworkers. It has to be excellent for people to be able to come in and worship. And then comes the temple, which is sort of like the tabernacle, but it stays in one place. And same thing. There's all kinds of aesthetic and excellence and you're just submerged in visual sights, sounds, smells, and God's Spirit is in there. In fact, the most holy place houses God's Spirit. But if you know the story, Israel's sin eventually becomes so great that God's Spirit up and leaves the temple, leaves Israel, and God's people go into exile, and all hope seems to be lost until the Spirit returns to the people in the form of Jesus of Nazareth, who was called Emmanuel, or God, what? With us. And people behold God's Spirit descend on Jesus of Nazareth like a dove, returning to his people. And then after Jesus' life and death and resurrection, the same Spirit gets poured out on all of Jesus' followers at something called Pentecost, and now it lives on in an ongoing movement of Jesus and has eventually come to indwell every single one of his followers, which are called the body of Christ. The body is now the temple of the Holy Spirit. The point is, God's Spirit is how God is with us, how Jesus fulfills His promise to be with us always. When you read about all these landmarks of the Spirit's dwelling place in Scriptures, Sinai, Tabernacle, Temple, Jesus, the Church, the Body, there is a direct and profound connectedness between this withness of God's Spirit and worship. Jesus actually talked about a coming era of spirit-filled worship in the conversation we just read with the Samaritan woman at the well, which brings us back to John 4. If you have it open in front of you, uh, read it again with me one more time, beginning in verse 24. Jesus says, God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. Interesting. Now, Turn just a few books to the right in your Bibles to a letter called Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 2. Now, in Ephesians, there's an apprentice of Jesus called Paul. He's written this letter to a church in a city called Ephesus, and he picks up on this idea of worshiping in the Spirit and in truth in Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 17. Paul writes, Jesus came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near, for through him we both have access to the Father by one what? Spirit. Verse 19, consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with King Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Early in the Bible story, the garden was a place of God's presence and a unique space for worship. But things went awry, of course, and God continues to work with wayward humanity to establish places for connection and for worship, the mountain, the tabernacle, the temple. 
But for a long time, these places were marked by restricted access and limitations. Uh, Only the high priest could go in, or only one of them at a time, only once a year, and so on. But eventually, just as Jesus said, an incredible reality would interrupt this fragmented rhythm of restriction and limitation. One day, Jesus said, we will worship in the Spirit and in truth. And later, Paul confirms, indeed, that day has arrived. The new place of worship is here. And it's not in a tabernacle, not in a temple, but in our very bodies, which are now home to God's Spirit. You are now the venue of Spirit-filled worship and intimacy with God. But worship, for many of us, is a complicated idea. Why do we worship anyway? Is God so insecure or so narcissistic that He requires songs heaped up on His fragile ego? Why is it the the thing to which we dedicate so much of our time here on Sunday evenings? It's a question worth asking for a number of reasons, Uh, one of them being, why worship, really, when God doesn't need it? You ever think about that one? God doesn't need any worship. It's not like God forgets who He is or what He's like. He's not like Tinkerbell or Pennywise the Dancing Clown. He, He doesn't draw His power from whether or not people believe in Him. God doesn't get conjured into the room by our singing and saying His name over and over again, like, you know, saying Beetlejuice three times or something. That's how many times you have to say His name, by the way. Beetlejuice, that is. You guys know what I'm talking about? Beetlejuice? That was three times. God doesn't need to be summoned because He's already everywhere. But we often forget that until we sing. And God doesn't need reminding of any of the things we say and sing when we worship. God doesn't need reminding, but we do. Okay, so is worship for us only? Well, no. God is not an abstract idea or an intangible force. God is a personal, relational being or a person. Not a human, but a person. It's hard for us to conceive of an omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscient, all the omnis, being who also craves relational intimacy because craving intimacy seems so human. Well, where do you think we got it from? The innate human longing for connection and relationship originates in and reflects the personhood of God Himself. We're that way because God is that way. We're that way because we were designed by God to reach for God and to connect with God. And in that sense, worship is much easier to understand by allowing ourselves to file it in very human-sounding categories. We all process and experience love and affection in different ways, but one of my biggest ways personally is through being told that I'm loved. So I already know intellectually that my wife Abby thinks nice things about me. She's told me many times over the past you know, decade plus, and she treats me as if she means them. Yet even so, to this day, if she, of her own volition, says something kind and loving to me, you know, 14 years into marriage, I feel deeply loved, and I love her in turn, and our sense of intimacy and connectedness, which can absolutely oscillate up and down, gets nurtured and reinforced. What I already know intellectually becomes something I experience in a meaningful and effective way, And both she and I are shaped over time as a result of her saying so and me saying so, as is our relationship as it grows and matures throughout the years. So stay with me on this. We've been making a case from the Scriptures that the Holy Spirit is not an impersonal or abstract force. 
He is a person. And that distinction matters because you cannot be in an active dynamic relationship with an abstract force, but you can be in a relationship with a person. The way Jesus is with us, the way He makes good on His promise to be with us always, is through the Holy Spirit, who in the Scriptures is also called the Spirit of Jesus. So given that the Spirit is a relational person rather than an impersonal concept, it actually makes perfect sense that one of the ways we engage Jesus to steward intimacy and reinforce our connectedness is through worship, through the relational act of connection through things like prayer and giving and singing songs. If you know about hyper-charismatic churches and traditions, maybe you associate them with weird-sounding stuff like waving flags around and yelling out in tongues and the whole getting slain in the spirit thing or whatever it might be. But what usually also comes up in the mind of a person who has any familiarity with, you know, hyper-charismatic churches and traditions is people really getting into worship. And while you can absolutely, you know, acknowledge certain abuses and poor practices and some uh, expressions of a hyper-charismatic tradition, I do think that it speaks volumes that when disciples of Jesus develop intimacy with the Holy Spirit, when they actually put effort into seeking the Spirit of God, they are almost always also churches that are invested and uninhibited in their worship. Now, there are lots of different modes of methods, modes and methods of worship. The umbrella is actually pretty broad. But for the rest of tonight, for the sake of time, I want to talk mostly about the idea of disciples of Jesus coming together to sing songs that ascribe value and praise to God. Now, that's not the only way we worship, but it is one big way, and we dedicate a lot of time to it here on Sunday evenings for a reason. Of course, I realize even that, singing songs on Sunday, is a thing that hits different people in different ways. A small few of you, by personality or wiring or upbringing or even discipline and maturity, you love worship. You see the value in it with no need of convincing. You feel drawn to it, caught up in it naturally. Thank God for you guys. Seriously, that's not facetious. That was not me. I grew up Southern Baptist singing from a hymnal with Miss Mary on piano and, you know, a varying cast of uh, characters on the organ. And Miss Teresa went like this while we sang. This was it. You can't, hear, you can't see this on the podcast, but... That's why you need to come to church. Now, <laughs> I uh, care very much about art and aesthetics, and I'm, um, like many people who care about those things, particular about those things. So for better or for worse, it has not been always as easy for me to just drop into certain genres and styles of music or art and enjoy them without judgment. That's my problem, not the art's problem. And like I said earlier, I don't like perceived contrivances, meaning I don't like when things feel, to me, manufactured or designed for corporate consumption. I have an extreme reaction to anything I perceive to be at all phony, and the things I think are phony often aren't really phony. I'm just a butthead sometimes. But in spite of all that, over the last 10 or so years of my life, I have become someone that I can say with integrity, genuinely loves worship. I love when we get together and sing. I don't just enjoy it. I find it crucial and necessary and life-giving. When we couldn't meet in person back in 2020, it was the thing that I missed most about our Sunday rhythm. And since I've written the spiritual discipline of worship into my rule of life, 
I was sitting in a room in my house not knowing what to do with myself. You know, normally it kind of takes care of itself. Every single Sunday we get together and worship. Now we don't do that. I guess I'll put on these headphones and sing in my room. And that was kind of embarrassing because my wife kept opening the door and making a face at me. She was trying to mess it up. To be fair, I'm sure I sounded great. It, it was not easy. And I, I didn't just arrive here as someone who genuinely loves and craves worship um, by way of innate disposition. That's not my wiring. I have never in my life listened to a worship album just to enjoy it as music. This is something that I had to learn. A lot of things I had to unlearn and a way of life I had to put into practice. In the past, though I would have never actually articulated it this way, I thought, I can see now, I thought of worship as an optional and ornamental expression of my discipleship when and if both my preferences and disposition lined up in such a way that I actually felt like doing it. In other words, I was a consumer. I thought of worship songs or worship by singing songs in church as this optional thing for me to enjoy when it was just right. Right style and aesthetic and band and vibe matched with the mood that I was in just right. And then, yeah, I'll worship for a little bit, as long as it doesn't feel fake. Because otherwise, I would have to work at it. And what good is worship if you have to force it, I once argued. In other words, worshiping God was, in almost every way, entirely about me. And I'm obviously mocking my past self, but it makes sense. Most of us are being indoctrinated by the world around us to be good consumers, to take what we like and scroll past what we do not like with no investment nor cost to us whatsoever. And I really believe in the value of art that asks something of us, even art that makes us upset or uncomfortable, because I believe that art, when it does what God designed it to do, asks something of the one beholding it. Art wants you to ask questions and to think and to feel, but not only, I would argue, good things all the time. Also, unpleasant or painful or scary or upsetting things, challenging things, because the human experience is about much more than entertainment and feeling nice. And art can be, by God's design, a meaningful place to explore the full range of the human experience, to better understand God and ourselves and the world in which we live. The point is that art asks for more than a passive and unaffected bystander, but mindless entertainment does not, and that's why we have reality TV and pop radio. And I had learned to treat worship like entertainment. I like it when it's just right for me, but if it's not my style or if it doesn't hit me in the right mood, no, 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 no. And the painful, sobering reality I had to face is that my reservations and reticence toward worship were, quite quite frankly, all selfish, all of them devoid of the Spirit. I was objectifying the Spirit of God. I don't prefer certain genres of music. I don't prefer certain environments and settings. I have misgivings about the people around me, whatever. It's all about me, my expectations, my felt needs, my preferences. And sadly, many of us approach church and community the exact same way. And we are conditioned by the culture to keep it up. But when you approach anything in your discipleship to Jesus and your place within God's family, focused on what you get and what you prefer as a preferential consumer, then you are in a very dangerous place. That said, 
I really wouldn't go as far as to say that worship is in no sense about you. It does have something to do with you. Worship is an intimate relational exchange. It is not a room of drones heaping praise on an unseen God to bolster his ego. He doesn't need that. It's not an empty ritual. It is a dynamic give and take. But without a relational paradigm for worship, many of us become skeptical about the whole thing. Thing is, it's not hard to see why someone might become skeptical of this archaic notion that we schedule a time, get in a room and sing songs, some of which we don't even prefer stylistically, as an act of worship to an invisible God. And like it or not, skepticism breeds more skepticism. And people end up thinking, even subconsciously, oh man, look at that, so-and-so doesn't get into worship. I wonder why. Maybe I should withhold my enthusiasm just in case there's something fishy going on here that they know and I don't. Dallas Willard once wrote about the way that modern culture has cultivated this strange notion that the skeptical person is somehow always smarter than the person who just believes. But that assumption is entirely arbitrary. It isn't actually based on anything other than skepticism itself. Think about it. Why is it that scores of young people, when presented with a choice between entertaining the insight of a bunch of seasoned theologians with PhDs and decades of rigorous study and pastoral experience around the world, all sorts of nationalities and ethnicities and walks of life, or some dork who's grumpy about God and has a podcast and an Instagram, Many, many, many of them will choose option B, dork with a podcast, because option A is the believer and thus suspicious or untrustworthy. Who cares how uninformed and inconsistent and sloppy and self-contradictory the skeptic is? They're the skeptic. They have to be on to something. Skepticism is the smarter thing. Now, don't get me wrong. There is certainly a time and a place to work through honest apprehension. You guys should know by now that we are all for honest wrestling and doubt and questions and all that, but I'm talking about a popularized corporate skepticism based on a felt need to ultimately just do whatever it is that you want to do. And I get it. That is my bent. I don't like being told what to do. I value individuality very highly. It's a huge challenge in my spiritual formation. But the hard truth that I've been wrestling through in my journey with Jesus is that though he cares deeply about me and what makes me unique to him, he really doesn't value my individuality much at all. Does he care about me as an individual? Of course he does. Jesus goes to great lengths to describe the unique, unsurpassable value God holds for every individual person, but he just isn't terribly concerned with creating a perfect little buffet out of life built on your personal preferences. Because such a thing would do you harm rather than good. You don't believe me? Look out on an entire generation of people so desperately fragile, they simply cannot handle a world that doesn't coddle and infantilize and bend to their every whim. Jesus' invitation to discipleship was to, the prerequisite was deny yourself on a regular, ongoing basis. And I remember thinking at some point, wrestling through my journey with worship, this is a true story, I was in prayer and feeling conviction from God's Spirit, and I just said, God, I want to worship, I really do, but it just isn't my style. And I remember feeling as though God replied by asking, so? Imagine treating any meaningful relationship the same way. If I were to withhold intimacy and connection from my wife, Abby, unless each and every avenue for connection were tailored to all my personal preferences, 
things like, oh, I would love to go out with you and spend quality time with you, but these places just aren't my style. Or for those of us who know anything about different types of personalities and the way they receive love, you know that in order to love a friend or a family member or a spouse well, you often have to go against your personal wiring to do so. So as I mentioned earlier, words mean a lot to me. Abby likes them too, but gestures of kindness mean more to her than words. I like gestures of kindness too, but I don't care nearly as much about gestures as I do about words and touch. But what am I supposed to do? Tell Abby, well, I'd love for you to feel known and valued, but that isn't my style. You, here, have some words. But when I go against my wiring to attempt to love Abby well, I grow in selflessness and I end up feeling more intimacy and connection as well. And there's more love and joy between my wife and myself. Jesus was on to something. Go figure. Now, I'm sure you can see where I'm going with all this. Many of us do want to encounter God and to experience intimacy with the Spirit, but we also want whether we realize it or not, to be entertained or catered to, to be lazy or passive and comfortable, and to maintain a healthy, hip skepticism in the process. We do want good things for good reasons, like we want good bands or good music or an ideal environment. There's nothing wrong with those things, and there's nothing wrong with preferring those things. I certainly do. And we can be honest, I think, about the fact that Popular worship music isn't exactly always known for innovation or incredible artistic integrity, but we often want good things for bad reasons as well, because we know how to be entertained, we know how to consume when our preferences are honored, but we don't know how to engage in and reach for intimacy regardless of preferences or mood or cynicism. We forget that God is constantly willing to work and move in less-than-ideal scenarios and people, and we hold ourselves to a higher standard than God. And because we have not cultivated the discipline of worship, we haven't trained ourselves to go against and beyond ourselves, we wonder why our sense of intimacy with God seems to oscillate with our mood. And the right band or the preferred atmosphere or the kind of style that we like becomes a convenient cover-up for the fact that we don't know how to give our intimacy to God, but we do know how to enjoy things according to our personal standards and preferences. I used to work at a, a mega church with this awesome-sounding worship band, and I honestly can't tell you how often I heard from people, I have a church that I go to, but I go here at night because the band is so amazing. And don't get me wrong, a great band and a great mix are awesome things. We desperately need more creative disciples of Jesus to take their art very seriously and treat it with the respect that it deserves. But what these I pick church based on the band people seem to be saying was, I will worship God when it suits my tastes. A.W. Tozer once wrote, the church that can't worship must be entertained. And leaders who can't lead a church to worship must provide the entertainment. Mark Sayers, uh, author, pastor, and cultural commentator, said something similar more recently. He argued that when we approach church as consumers, worship service becomes pseudo-media event. Church building becomes theme park. Christian leader becomes Christian celebrity. Teaching becomes entertainment. Salvation becomes self-help. Discipleship becomes lifestyle enhancement. Soul becomes self. Denomination becomes brands. Gospel becomes slogans. Entertainment isn't inherently bad. It's just not the same thing as intimacy. 
And this is actually about much more than intimacy. If you remember back to a couple of weeks ago, I argued that from the Scriptures that intimacy is the beginning of how we operate in, in the empowerment of God's Spirit. I said it like this, intimacy with God plus holiness plus faith equals power. And of course, conversely, no intimacy, no holiness, no faith, no power. Meaning ground zero for becoming the type of person able to hear God's voice, to prophesy over their community and family and kids, to pray for miraculous healing over the sick, deliverance from evil spirits, all that stuff. Ground zero is the simple and obvious starting point of intimacy with God, to be with Jesus. And again, there are many methods of stewarding that intimacy. I would argue personally that a daily time of prayer and practicing the presence of God is chief among them. There are entire spiritual disciplines dedicated to the work of being with Jesus. And we've worked through several in teaching series and practices in our communities over the years, things like silence and solitude and prayer and Sabbath and fasting. We'll come back to those things as our church grows. But worship, I would argue, spirit-filled worship is a special, beautiful way, a gift long awaited by the people of God that we have at our immediate disposal and in our midst during our time of communion on Sunday. And we miss it. We often willfully neglect it. In my own journey with all of this, I was very much that reticent, preferential person looking for an out. I don't prefer, personally, I once argued, to wave my hands around and sing really loud. And what difference does it make if I do or I don't? And really, it took someone agreeing with me to see the problems in my logic. That's how much of a contrarian I am, apparently. I remember uh, talking this through with a like-minded person, and we were, you know, just reinforcing one another's opinions like you do, patting each other on the back the, the way divisive people do. And this person said, as we were going on lamenting about how we don't really get into worship, this person said, and really, why do we even sing at all? And I kind of paused, because that, that seemed too far. So I said, well, you know, we sing because God designed many of, many of us with functioning vocal cords. And they said, well, sure, but God knows what we're thinking. We don't have to tell Him. And I said, well, yeah, but I often know what someone is thinking, and still I need to have it vocalized. Or Jesus said, God knows what we need, but we're still supposed to ask for it. We don't stop praying. And they said, okay, fine, but why the hand-raising and the dancing around and I thought there, in that moment, that this was suddenly the silliest question of them all. I said, well, I mean, most humans, even infants, they respond to music with their bodies before they can even sing. If I think back to some of the most best, or the best, most impacting live performances I've witnessed, I didn't stand stoically and think to myself. I engaged. There was singing and dancing and the whole thing. And I knew all of this. We, we say this all the time. We are more than just souls or minds that inhabit bodies. We are created by God as bodies and souls, hearts and minds. All of it is you. All of it is interconnected. So we pray with the mind and the body through things like group prayer or liturgy or fasting is the way you pray with the body or singing. And I knew all of that through the scriptures and I knew that God constantly uses in the story of the Bible physical symbols and gestures that He designs and commands and utilizes all sorts of ways to worship and to uphold community. Almost all of them are outward, physical, and even symbolic. When you read about the grand gestures of praise in the Bible, each of them is either primarily physical 
or it is accompanied by an uh, outward component. Worship in the scriptures involves not just singing and dance, but not just singing, but dancing, lifting hands or kneeling or bowing or lying face down. Worship for one woman in Luke's gospel was to pour perfume on Jesus' feet and wash his feet with her hair and her tears, an incredible outward physical symbolic gesture. And I realized, man, I really don't have any good reasons for my theology other than my personal preferences. And worship, stewarding intimacy and connection with God's Spirit, is not about my preferences. And quite frankly, it's not even just about me and God. It's about the rest of you. Believe me, I've been working with churches and church leaders long enough to have heard dozens and dozens of stories from individuals that sound something like this. I showed up to church I was worn out and empty, but then I saw so-and-so in front of me, and their arms were raised in worship with wild abandon, and I was so encouraged and emboldened by them that I was led by them into the presence of God, and they didn't even know it. Of course, that doesn't mean that it's your job to put on a show so that someone else can get into it. It just means that when we make the deliberate, disciplined effort to engage in this unique time and space without being subject to mood or preference, when we cultivate intimacy and connection with God, with our minds and voices and our bodies, it can lift up the entire family of God. And that's part of what it means to come and to contribute rather than showing up just to take. A couple of years ago, uh, Tab, one of our overseers and worship leaders, he told me that there have been times when He has been on stage leading worship where he'll step off stage as the gathering's over and go out into the crowd to thank someone who led him in worship. Worship leader and musician Dana Dooley argues this, Sometimes I sing for the person next to me. They need to hear about God's faithfulness, about His goodness and His grace. And I sing a little bit louder so that they know it in the depths of their soul. And sometimes I need you to sing for me. I need to be reminded that He is here. He is not silent. I need to be reminded that He is faithful and He is good. And remember, this is a specific disciplined effort for most of us. You are working to push back the indoctrination of consumer culture and mindless entertainment and cynicism. And we're going to engage in that effort by standing stoically and mumbling. That's how you fight back against cultural indoctrination, by just standing there and reading slides. I don't think it works. Believe me, I've tried it. Now, I mentioned that story in Luke 7 where a woman who had spent much of her life getting things wrong comes to Jesus. She pours perfume on his feet. In that story, the entire scene unfolds in the presence of stoic, refined religious leadership who does no such embarrassing thing. And notice this fascinating thing that Jesus says in that story. Jesus turned toward the woman and said to Simon, the religious leader, do you see this woman? I came into your house, you did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. Not because she thought things to herself, but in accordance with the outward and physical demonstration of her love, as her great love has shown. I love that. Jesus values the outward display, the physical display of affection in worship. 
And sure, this isn't a passage about singing in church, but the parallels are obvious. Imagine if this profound act of worship were somehow impeded by this woman's preferences or inability to rise above her disposition. Pouring out expensive perfume was a costly thing to do, something done uh, at not only the woman's financial expense, but at the expense of her already frail dignity that she would sit in front of other people weeping and kissing Jesus' dirty feet, which he specifically points out had not been washed, was undignified, and yet there I was for years. I get that Jesus wants intimacy and worship, but that's not my style. Now, I know our church, and I know this hits a lot of us as, uh, in different ways. For some of us, you're like, yeah, I get it. I'm already doing all that. Again, thank God for you. For others of us, this is a hard pill to swallow, and many of us, it's something in between, a mixture of both. Believe me when I say that none of this is intended to make anyone feel bad or less than. Again, this is my story. But more than that, this is an invitation. I feel comfortable and qualified to say as much because I spent a long time deliberately resigned to my reticence in worship, and I have come to a very different place. So I know both things, and I can tell you that if you have yet to step out into a disciplined, engaged approach to undignified worship with your mind, your voice, and your body, you are missing out in your discipleship to Jesus. There is a kind of intimacy and connectedness available to you by God's Spirit that you are, quite frankly, missing. And that doesn't mean that unless everyone is going bananas all the time, they aren't close to God, not at all everyone's full engagement will look very different. And that's great. But if you have yet to wade deep into the undignified waters of fearless worship, you are missing out. See, it's easy and understandable to overlook the sheer magnitude of our unique circumstances because we're so far removed from the context. But look at it this way. Worship has always been deeply important to God's people. And for centuries after the fall, after everything went wrong in the garden, the only way to worship was to enact certain rituals or to go to certain places. And even then, it was restricted and logistic, and only one person could do it at a time or whatever. And because of sin, there was a time when God's people lost even that. The Spirit left the temple. They went into exile. They had to write poems in a different city, oppressed and everything. And for centuries, the people of God longed for a place and a way to just be with God and to worship and enjoy His presence. And there was nothing. There was no way to hear God's voice. There was no place to worship Him until God Himself did something about it. And now God's Spirit is not localized on a mountain or in a temple, but in you, And the sacred place for worship is your very body, your hands, your feet, your vocal cords, your mind. You are the temple, and not just you in the individual sense, but you in the plural, God's people, the church. We are that temple, the place for worship. We, as disciples of Jesus, can hear God's voice and meet with Him in a meaningful and personal way, a reality so many of God's people died before they could see it come to pass. And knowing all that, isn't it worth trying to come against the indoctrination of our culture, against personal preferences and dispositions and individualism? Isn't it enough to try to make a disciplined effort to acknowledge and honor and celebrate what God has done and to cultivate closeness with Him in the process? Isn't it worth showing up on a Sunday evening expecting something? 
There's this interesting line in 1 Corinthians where Paul unpacks all the things that the Spirit does to one church learning to operate in the things of the Spirit. And in chapter 14, he writes this, What then shall we say, brothers and sisters? When you come together, each of you has a hymn or a word of instruction or a revelation, a tongue, an interpretation. Everything must be done so that the church may be built up. Paul's operating assumption is a complete inversion of how church is often done today. In Paul's mind, no one is coming to take. All of them are showing up to give something for the sake of the other, to engage. Paul's paradigm is of a family that can simply take for granted that men and women are showing up in eager expectation, not just to consume, but to give, not to take, but to share. And this has nothing to do with hype. Forget hype. This is about expectation, the deeply held theological conviction that God, by His Spirit, is in and with us, and He is going to say and do things, and we engage Him by worshiping. Of course, you can show up to spend time with a friend, or go out with your kids, or go on a date night with your spouse, and just go through the motions, and take them for granted, and get little to nothing from it, and give little to nothing to it. But wouldn't you rather remember that these times with the people you love are precious and meaningful and overflowing with potential for intimacy and connection and hearing something that you need to hear or saying something that you need to say and just being with someone that you love in a true meaningful sense. The church gathering is certainly not in any sense the only venue for intimacy and singing is not the only kind of worship, but this time is special. And this kind of worship is important. It has been for disciples of Jesus all over the world for centuries. Most of us, this is the only time in a week that we have to come and stand together in worship and sing with family, with believers surrounded by brothers and sisters in Jesus to push back against cynicism and distraction and say, no, we are still here together. We believe. Don't believe us? Watch. We will sing it out. This is a unique time, a crucial time. Or will we stand back and shrug and say, I don't know if I feel like it tonight. Or don't even show up. I was tired. It was sunny. I wanted to picnic. Whatever. I'll catch it next time. This is not a social event. The essence of the evening cannot be distilled into a podcast because the essence of the gathering is not a teaching. The essence of the evening is communion with God and with one another. Intimacy with God, intimacy with your brothers and sisters, and hear this coming from the guy whose job it is to write these teachings, you do not get the essence of church from a podcast. You get one element of it, and even that element is designed to exist within the context of the rest of the gathering. Quite frankly, we put it online for the people who are good enough and self-sacrificial enough to be downstairs with the kids. Remember what this is. I have to remind myself. This is not just a job. This is not an optional event. This is not a ritual and a routine only. This is a realization of something awaited by God's people for centuries, available to us now by the great generosity of God himself. And I'm not saying preferences and moods don't matter. And I'm, I am asking, do not let these things keep you from the intimate presence of God in worship and the building up of the family of God's people. We need those things. This is not about fabricating a good mood. You can come to God in your brokenness, in your despair, in your distraction, and pour out your heart in worship. You can come before God, as I have many times, in your numbness and worship Him, and He will break down the callous over your heart and lead you into intimacy if you will let Him.
if you will let your brothers and sisters do it for you as well. In the months and years ahead, I really don't care at all if we get hundreds and hundreds of people or a massive budget or a cool reputation or more podcast subscribers or whatever. Yes, it would be nice to grow. Yes, we want to become financially stable. That would be nice. It's neat if people listen to the podcast. But what I've honestly been hoping and praying is that our family will grow and to continue to grow in the seriousness and the great dedication with which we approach Jesus and His church and how seriously we take this sacred time. And don't get me wrong, I love that we have fun. I have no intention of making things miserable and stoic all the time. I want us here for each other, ready, showing up against all odds in spite of whatever comes our way, not to consume or to take, but an eager expectation of a God who shows up for us by His Spirit, giving ourselves over an eager adoration to worship, to be with Him, to be broken before Him, and to bring one another on that journey when those tired among us feel unable to stand themselves. So Spirit, fill us that may be so. Let me pray and ask God's Spirit to empower us to worship well. Thanks for listening to Van City. You can connect with us and find more teachings and available resources at www.vancity.church. You can support Vancity financially at vancity.church/give.